Hello, and welcome to Biota. I'm Phil Gibson. Since we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the SARS-CoV-2 virus becoming a pandemic, I thought I'd use this episode to ask a fundamental question about this virus. And that question is, how do scientists know where it came from? Now, I don't mean that geographically. How I mean it is evolutionarily. To answer that question, I'm going to explain a technique that scientists use to study everything from the origins of new viral diseases to the evolution of humans. This technique is a way to analyze data and investigate the evolutionary history of living systems. This scientific technique is called tree thinking. In this episode, I'll explain what tree thinking is and give you several examples to help you understand how to interpret these diagrams and develop your tree thinking skills. So let's get started. In a recent episode, I described how Charles Darwin developed a new way of thinking about how evolution worked. Instead of seeing evolution as a line or ladder, with less evolved species at the bottom and better ones at the top, Darwin saw the evolution of life as a tree. Because of that, evolutionary biologists call this way of looking at evolution tree thinking. It was a revolutionary idea that wasn't fully appreciated at first, but eventually, scientists saw how they could use Darwin's model to explain the diversity and evolutionary relationships among different living things. So let's start with this example. Imagine a tree. Its trunk grows upwards from the ground. Eventually, a branch splits off from the main trunk. A little bit higher up, another does the same thing. On each of these branches, smaller branches come off of them. We now have a tree with its trunk and then a crown made up of many branches with twigs and leaves out at their tips. That's how Darwin saw evolution. Just like the way branches on a tree go back to the same trunk, Darwin saw all life, every species, every genus, every kingdom as a lineage sharing a common history. Sometimes lineages branch off and diverge from the common ancestral lineage and they'll grow in a different direction. But every lineage traces its ancestry back to their common history. For example, think about animals as being a big branch on our tree of life and there's some smaller branches coming off of it. One of those smaller branches could be the arthropods, and it could have species of insects or spiders or crustaceans out at the tips of its twigs. Another branch could have all the mammals, with humans, dogs, pandas, koalas, and all of the animals like them at its tips. Another major branch on our tree could be plants, with some of the branches coming off of it containing ferns at their tips or species of pines. Another branch could have all of the flowering plants. I think you get the general idea. Now, Darwin reasoned that the different branches in the tree of life all share traits that indicate which branch they belong to. This fit very well with the way that Linnaeus had organized life in his nested hierarchy system a little over 100 years earlier. For example, all species in the mammal category share certain defining traits. But animals in the bear category, or the dog category, or the cat category, they all have traits that define those unique groups all within the larger category of mammals. So the way that Darwin viewed this the base of the tree is the past. Moving up the trunk represents the shared common history through time of all the lineages of living things. Different lineages diverge from this common history. Each branch is defined by some unique feature that's shared by all of the species on that branch. And then the buds at the tips of each branch, well, they're the species alive currently in the present. Now that we have this model of a branching tree of life diagram, let's lean in a bit and think about how to read it. It's fairly easy to do, but there's some simple principles that you need to follow to do it correctly. Let's start by imagining a simple two-dimensional tree. If you want, you can draw it as I describe it. I've also posted a diagram of this tree I'm going to describe on the Biota website, 
you can find it at jphilgibsonlab.oucreate.com. So you can hit pause here and go find it, and I'll just wait. All right, so back to our imaginary tree. Its trunk starts at the bottom and starts to grow upwards. At the top, the trunk of our tree splits into two branches, one on the left and one on the right. Your diagram should look kind of like an uppercase Y. We'll finish off our tree diagram by having each one of these branches also split into two smaller branches. We'll label the two tips on the branch on the left A and B, and then label the other two tips on the right Y and Z. These four tips, the AB pair and the YZ pair, could be any taxonomic group, but we'll call them species just to keep things simple. This type of branching diagram we've drawn is called a cladogram. The name comes from the Greek word klados, which means branch. Scientists call a branch on these types of diagrams a clade. You can think of this cladogram as a graphical representation of the evolutionary relationships among species in this family tree. The relationships shown in this cladogram are called a phylogeny, and for this reason, cladograms are also called phylogenetic trees. So just like I mentioned in describing the tree earlier, the bottom of the trunk in our diagram is the past, and the tips where you've written A, B, and Y, and Z, those are the present. Let's next think about the lines in our phylogenetic tree. The lines that make up each clade represent lineages. The places where the lines split in the diagram are called nodes. There should be three of them in the tree you've drawn, one where the two main branches split, and one for each of them where they split into either the AB group or the YZ group. You can draw dots on the nodes to make them stand out. Nodes represent the common ancestors of all the lineages originating from them. In our diagram, the node at the first split is the common ancestor shared by all four species, AB and YZ. The node on the left is the common ancestor of species A and B. The node on the right is the common ancestor of Y and Z. Before moving on, let me summarize the main points in this diagram so far. It has a trunk representing the common ancestral lineages, that is the shared history of all four species, A, B, Y, and Z. At one point, the lineages shared a final common ancestor. That's our first node. It shows where some of the populations of that common ancestral species became isolated from one another. This split leads to two separate lineages, changing and differentiating from each other over time. The same thing happened once again in each of those two lineages, giving us the four separate species. We interpret the evolutionary relationships among the species in this diagram based on the branching patterns. Species A and B share a more recent common ancestor with one another than either does with species Y and Z. Because of this, species A and B are more closely related to each other than either is to Y or Z. But Species A and B are each equally related to Y and Z because they share the same common ancestor. This same logic applies when comparing Y and Z to the other two species on the other branch. Let me use another example to help you understand how to interpret relationships in a cladogram. Consider a woman who has two daughters. These two sisters each have two children. The two pairs of children are more closely related to their siblings than they are to their cousins. That's because they share a more recent common ancestor with their siblings. That's their mother. They are related to their cousins, but that's through a more distant common ancestor, their grandmother. So it works the same way in describing relationships in a family tree or in a cladogram. The more recent the common ancestor, the closer the relationship. As you get more species and more data, there are more ways for a phylogenetic tree to be drawn. 
Scientists use a logical principle called parsimony to try and figure out which of the different trees is probably the most accurate. Parsimony says that the simplest explanation, it's probably the right answer. So in our case, the evolutionary tree that requires the fewest evolutionary changes is probably the one that's best. Now, it may not actually be the correct phylogeny, but what parsimony does is it provides a starting point for further studies. You see, a cladogram, or any phylogenetic tree, is basically a graphical hypothesis of relationships that can be tested and evaluated to investigate the evolution and history of living or almost living things. Parsimony provides a starting place for considering the evolutionary hypothesis in your phylogeny. For example, one of the things scientists have been wondering for the past year is where did the SARS-CoV-2 virus come from? So what they want to know is what mutations occurred that changed this virus and caused it to jump species boundaries and cause this pandemic. These are important questions whose answers can help us understand this pandemic and possibly prevent the next one. To figure out where the SARS-CoV-2 virus came from, scientists sequenced its genetic material, what they call its genome. That's the unique genetic identity for this virus. Next, they compared the SARS-CoV-2 genome to a library of genome sequences from other viruses. Using powerful computers and specific algorithms, they compared every similarity and difference in the genomes of these different viruses. From that analysis, they produced a tree diagram showing the relationships among all of the different viruses, including the SARS-CoV-2 virus and its closest relative, a virus found in bats called RATG13. Although the genetic analysis is complex and looks at a lot of data, the basic concept behind making the phylogenetic tree is pretty simple. It's based on grouping things based on their shared similarities and then differentiating them based on their unique features. Let me use another example to explain. Imagine you and three of your friends go to a carnival together, and at this carnival there's a maze. Now for this maze there's a single entrance that you and your friends enter one at a time. When it's your turn, you go in. As you walk down the first corridor of the maze, you come to a table with a bowl of blue beads and a sign next to it that says, take one. So you do. This first corridor comes to an end where you can turn left or right. You decide to go left, and after taking a few more steps, it turns back to the right, and you come to another table with a bowl of green beads. And next to it is a sign that says, take one. So you do. Once more you continue on, and the same thing happens with a series of left and right turns, and as you go down the final corridor, you go by a third bowl with purple beads. You take one, and then exit on the other side of the maze. On the other side, your three friends are waiting for you. Now they entered the same way you did, but they came out through three different exits. One friend has a blue and a green bead, just like you, but instead of a purple bead, their third bead is pink. Your other two friends also have blue beads, but they then have a brown bead, and then one of them has a black bead and the other has an orange one. So like you, one friend followed a similar path through the maze, a shared journey of sorts. Your other two friends followed a different route through the maze, but they also had differences in their journeys. If the corridors of the maze branch but never cross each other, and if a bowl containing a particular color of beads is found at only one place in the maze, could you reconstruct the different routes that you and each of your friends took through that maze based on the colors of beads you each have? Can you draw the maze and then mark the locations where the bowls of each color of beads were located? When you draw this out, your map of the maze should be similar to the first cladogram you drew. 
The first corridor of the maze is like the trunk of the tree diagram, and the table with the blue beads is located there. The first split in your maze happens at a node. The bowl of green beads is on the corridor to the left, and the bowl of brown beads is on the corridor to the right. And then the bowls with the purple or the pink beads are one of the final two corridors on the left, and then the bowl of black or orange beads are on the final two corridors on the right. You have now reconstructed the four routes that you and your friends took through the maze. You've also located the positions of the bowls. You might be wondering, how does this relate to evolutionary trees? Well, the corridors of our map represent lineages, and the bowls of beads represent characteristics that have changed or evolved in those lineages. For example, think of the first corridor as the lineage of all coronaviruses. They all share unique defining traits that can be represented by the blue beads. Next, our lineage of coronaviruses split and became two separate lineages. One of those is a lineage of coronaviruses that are responsible for about 15% of the cases of common colds. <coughs> the other lineage is the one that gave rise to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Maybe a population of bats with this second virus, they colonized a new cave and never interacted with the original population ever again. As the viruses and bats living in separate caves begin to mutate, they will accumulate changes that are found in the virus lineages in one cave, but not in the virus lineage in the other. As more unique mutations arise in each population of viruses, they diverge and become different from one another. Eventually, the accumulated differences could become so great that they are considered different viruses and different from the virus that they originated from. Okay, so this is clearly a very simplified example, but it does illustrate how biologists use shared characteristics to group organisms together and then unique characteristics to differentiate them within those groups. It doesn't matter if you're using genetic data, morphological data, or ecological data. As long as the data are reliable and informative, this method of analysis will work. So how does this relate to the evolution of COVID-19? Instead of corridors in a maze, Think of the corridors as the branches on a cladogram. The beads represent mutations shared by individuals in these different viral lineages. Just like individuals who have similar colors of beads must have followed the same corridors and path through the maze, species with similar mutations have a shared evolutionary history. In the case of SARS-CoV-2 and the RATG13 virus, they share unique mutations that indicate their common shared ancestry in some population of bats, and it shows that there is a very close relationship between them but they each have their own unique mutations that differentiate them and distinguish them from one another, and those differences also influence the species they can infect. In addition to relationships among organisms, one of the things biologists can also learn from these evolutionary tree diagrams is the sequence of changes in the evolution of a lineage. For example, scientists use cladograms to see how viral strains are related in the branching patterns of a cladogram. But what they're also looking at is what the sequence of mutations were that changed this virus. Knowing when mutations occurred and in what sequence could help epidemiologists track the history of an existing disease and help them know what to look for in a new one. There's one last thing I want to explain. It's important to remember that you can draw a cladogram multiple ways. In a cladogram, you can rotate the branches around a node, but the overall branching pattern should not change. Think about the tree you drew earlier. On the AB branch, you could have labeled either branch A or B. It wouldn't matter. The overall branching pattern would be the same. Let me use one last example to illustrate that point. Think about a mobile. 
you know, one of those hanging pieces of art that has branches with things hanging down from them. Now, mobiles can typically rotate as they hang from a single point. No matter how the mobile rotates and the pieces move as it spins, the relationship of nodes and branching patterns doesn't change. It stays the same. As long as the branching patterns leading from the nodes to the tips is the same, then the phylogeny is interpreted the same way. The relationships don't change. It's just like with our mobile. As it spins, some of the pieces hanging down might become closer or farther away. But the branching pattern stays the same. The relationships among branches and tips doesn't change. It's the same thing when you draw a cladogram in different ways. You can rotate branches around the nodes. As long as the branching pattern is the same, the relationships among the species at the tips is the same too. So, let me summarize. Scientists use cladograms to investigate questions ranging from the history of relationships for all of life on Earth to the origins of a novel zoonotic coronavirus. To read and interpret these diagrams, they use something called tree thinking. It's a way of looking at evolution that was originally developed by Charles Darwin. Following Darwin's logic of a nested pattern of branches and nodes to describe the origin of species, scientists use cladograms and tree thinking to explore patterns of evolutionary relationships, to understand the evolution of novel traits, to identify the origins of diseases, and many other questions that help us understand the unity and diversity of life. Tree thinking is a fundamental skill scientists use to answer a lot of different kinds of questions. I'm Phil Gibson, and thanks for listening to this Tree Thinking episode of Biota. All of the diagrams I've talked about in this episode and other resources can be found on my website, jphilgibsonlab.oucreate.com. There are also some links to different resources to teach and learn about tree thinking. So, from everyone on the Biota team, thanks for listening, have a great day, and take very good care of your genetic material. All opinions expressed in this episode are those of the author alone. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. Thank you.